Welcome to Club Crowd Radio. Please listen to this important disclaimer in its entirety. All participants of this Thug Crowd Radio episode are characters. None of the stories told during these episodes are based on facts, truth, or reality. All works of fiction displayed during this episode that resemble real-life situations are coincidental and are not meant to serve as guides or tutorials to commit any crimes in any country. Please consult an attorney for local laws and regulations. And as always, your inner criminal. And get your head knocking. So, I got a, like an assumption to make about the whole freaking uh, Verizon actually uh bam of limiting freaking firefighters i bet you they were just sitting down watching youtube oh well hey <laughs> have you were a firefighter before or something you know have some insight into that process yeah i used to be an emergency well kind of still am i guess but yeah no i've been a volunteer and did emergency response so i can talk about that for hours if you really want me to well hey everybody yeah um i'd love to hear your thoughts about it. i was thinking about you when i saw this but yeah everybody welcome uh to Club crowd episode 23 um we got a lot of news we got a lot of funny stuff to share and yeah um we'll definitely be i'm talking to you about that one more pike um sorry i didn't know we started oh it's okay it's totally fine <laughs> we get excited everyone here does um but yo um hey everybody um thanks for tuning in um we got a bit of news the show notes if you guys didn't see it i'll post it again in the different stream chats there's, uh, there's a broken link in there. Yeah, there is a broken link, and I will post that link in here because I didn't have a chance to update it. So when I, it, I, it's in the uh, news and exploits channel, but I will put it in there when we get to it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, um, so we have a bit of stuff to cover. So I guess we should just get started with the news. So one of them we saw last week um, was the first story on our news um, section, um, and it was about Australians who don't unlock their phones, could face up to 10 years in jail. So this is like a part of like the assistance and access bill, which we talked about last week. But it's interesting to see how it's playing out now. Yeah, it's um, it's actually not really that new, this particular thing. Either. It's like mm-hmm. uh, there's been some previous um, laws in place where basically if, if uh, law enforcement could prove that you have stuff on your device, whether it be like an encrypted computer or whatever, if they were able to to prove through some other method that um that you didn't that sorry that you that you knew what the key was so they had you know surveillance of you unlocking the machine and they knew that there was dirt on there they could jail you for that already um so this is just I guess an extension of that uh, I think ten years is a bit excessive um, specifically for this but you know it's pretty um I don't know it's just we have this big, uh, there's, there's a big political uh, thing going on at the moment, in, but uh, just internally within the, the government that's currently in power. And um, I mean, the guy who's in, the heading up this bill is, you know, trying to undermine the prime minister, basically. And TLDR, he doesn't know shit about shit, and he's making mistakes all over the place. And this is what happens when people make real bad mistakes. 
Um, yeah, no, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of these weird, just sort of heavy-handed things that people are, are trying to put into place because of new technology that most people who are making laws don't seem to understand. But, yeah, um, it's just interesting to see that that's happening out there in Australia. That's, like, a, quite a long time, 10 years. Yeah, we, we did see um, in the States that uh, a guy who locked his phone or who didn't unlock his phone after his, I mean, had, he, he refused uh, his car to be searched. Mm-hmm. The canine unit came down and then um, there were two phones and a small amount of marijuana found in his car. He decided not to unlock the lo- unlock his phones. And when he appeared in front of a judge, they gave him six months. And we were like, whoa, six months, like that's huge. That's a lot of time yeah. for, for not unlocking your phone. Um, considering that, well, like weed is legal in a bunch of states and, you know, there needed to be, there must be some reason why that happened. Like, you know, that's a, he's got two phones for one. So one's probably a money phone, you know, um, and that, that's sick, you know, that, that has a little bit more behind it. This is just like, oh, you're not going to unlock your phone. Ooh, well, 10 years. Yeah. It's, you might as well go kill someone. Like if, you, right? if you're yeah. going to do 10 years in jail, like, geez. Don't kill someone. We don't. I don't. Uh, I don't advocate that kind of crime. Real angry right now for obvious reasons, but yeah, don't kill people. It's bad. Yeah, it's bad. Um. Sorry. Um. But yeah, I was trying to respond to something real quick. Um. So the next one that I have is kind of uh, funny. Um. Is the Microsoft worker gets jail time for fake FBI ransomware? Um. So the somebody had gotten caught, they were a network engineer at Microsoft and they were making those like fake, just fake ransomware. They, all they did was like lock the computer. I guess it didn't even actually um, encrypt anything, but it would just lock the computer and say that the FBI was, um, has locked your computer unless you pay, you need to pay Bitcoin um, because you've been caught illegally downloading, you know, movies or child porn or whatever. And um, yeah, this person who did this though worked at Microsoft. Did you know this was like a login screen disclosure? A what? Like a login screen disclosure that was happening here? No, I think it was, was like a example? pop-up. It was like a pop-up of some sort that just said like, "This is the FBI. Like you are. <laughs> you've been. Like, it didn't. It didn't actually encrypt any files. It didn't do anything. It, it literally just froze your computer. And I mean, there was this, um, so at uh, ACSC, which is a conference here in Australia about two years ago, Australia Post did a, uh, a similar thing where they, they basically did an internal awareness ransomware thing, um, and they used a fake malware where it popped up and said, uh, you know, it had some scary Russian writing, mm-hmm. and it, it uh, did the low-level hid hook just like in C-sharp, and then it, it, it doesn't return, and if it doesn't return, all the, all the input is like ignored, right? Yeah. So um, like the rest of the chain doesn't execute, and then I mean, like full screen, throw it on top, run it as like an administrative user system, whatever. Uh, don't return, and then you have that's that's fake ransomware. Like it's yeah, not a whole great deal to it, right? So I feel like this guy. Um, I mean, he could have probably just done this as a you know legit, like you know through maybe Microsoft would have let him do security awareness or something, but. Uh, was he actually getting the money? Was he taking two hundred dollars? Um, I, I guess this, so. It, this was really this was really big back before ransomware was a thing. I used to see this all the time. The money pack uh, FBI stuff. Yeah, so I'm wondering if the stuff that I saw was from this this one dude. It 
It probably was. It seems like it was pretty widespread, and they were working with people who also did other sort of like scams and stuff online. So I could see that being the case. I, I remember this too. Talking about like the background where you'd log in, and it was like the FBI, blah blah blah. You remember those with the yeah, seals? yeah, that's yeah. too. It's just like it's like literally just like the most like childish way to do it. But I mean, if people hadn't seen this before, and they were doing something like I don't know, downloading a file. I mean, it's just like if you say. Like, oh, hey, Kevin, to a room full of people, and somebody turns around, like, there's going to be one person that's going to, like, eventually believe you, you know, or, or listen to you and yeah. respond. So. What I think is funny is, uh, so it, he's good enough to be hired as a, uh, by Microsoft as a network engineer. Like, 10 out of 10 lols. I think a, se- a senior programmer is, like, two years industry experience. So Microsoft, I could be wrong, but... It's easy to get yeah. hired at Microsoft. Yeah, it's, like, not... They make it out like because it's a big company. He must have been really smart, but obviously his actions show that he wasn't quite as smart as he thought he was. No, absolutely not. I mean, I don't know. We always see this like if you're gonna be a bad boy, gotta be a bad boy. Good. Yeah, um, I'd just yeah. like to make a quick shout out to Dr. Zell for listening. Thanks, Zell. <laughs> and we got a bunch of people on tonight. Um, good show. Um, but yeah, so. The next one I have here is there's three more um, data leaking security holes um, found in uh, Intel chips. Gas. Yeah, so it's it's funny. They're oh, actually yeah. being um, being released right now. I don't know if it was released. It was it was at Usenix. They were they were doing a presentation about it. But there's basically three different bugs that all affect like L1 cache, and they are able to just pull data from L1 cache, like in the CPU itself, and uh, it affects like system management mode, operating systems, whatever. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's just another th- three new bugs. It just It's funny to see once people start looking at this specific type of thing, the, then the amount of research that goes into it because that attention has been brought to it, it's just funny to see how, how many people end up finding stuff because of this. Yeah, it was. I was just having a conversation with someone at DEF CON uh, about like, Everyone thinks, oh, like everyone's already covered that thing. Like, I should, yeah. I'm not going to do that. Uh, so, no one like does research in a specific topic or specific corner because they just assume other people are looking at it. And that's not yeah. always the case, as we very like as we see right now. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, I mean, I'm really excited. Actually, I was thinking about doing a stream to use a sand sifter. Um, and that Rosenbridge uh, tool that was um, released at DEF CON about uh, the secret instructions in the like RISC chip in x86 processors, and just doing a stream on on just running Sand Sifter and seeing what comes up because it's um, definitely really cool. And it's cool that there's like, tools now that have been developed and. And yeah, there there have been a couple of bugs found in specific chips. Um, they're able to like say turn off like um, like access protections for um, call like page tables and stuff through that through those instructions. But it's cool that that there are tools that are made so that people can like actually look at their own processors because there's so many different variants of x86 and so many ones that were made for specific applications. So it's cool that you're able to like people that are like actively making tools and and like resources to be able to actually explore these bugs instead of having to start from like zero you know but i think it's also like worth it too if you are interested to just kind of poke around and see what the existing research is and just kind of see what else you can come up with from there 
Yeah, I said it's something that uh, it's not explored very much. No, no, that, definitely not. Cause it's it's massive. I mean, I've seen. The, I think it was the same guy who did the breaking the X eighty six instruction set last year or two years ago at um, at Black Hat, I believe, is where I saw a, a talk about um, like finding like he developing the Sandsister tool and finding all of those um, undocumented instructions, and then from there next year putting out bugs in those same things so it's just it's cool to see like you know how many how the research gets developed over time yeah and how it's like able to be used in order to like further research for other people too that's one of the, yeah. the great things about like uh, security research mm -hmm. building off of each other and crediting them yes creativity um, but we so, won't go there yet <laughs> yes and also giving the tools away to people for uh for public use. Um, so yeah. Um, just on that, I think, um, sorry, just before we move off, I just wanted to like point out some of the interesting things that is mentioned in here being uh, like uh, the malicious guest VM, being able to infer values of data mm -hmm. um, in other guest VMs. I think that's really interesting because like when you have a DC full, like, you know, racked up that's Amazon or racked up that's DigitalOcean or whatever, mm -hmm. um, it's not getting changed anytime soon. You know, they've got those boxes there. They might expand, but they're not going to, like, decommission those until they have a good reason to. Um, so, I mean, finding certain instructions that allow you to, uh, you know, undocumented instructions that allow you to fuck with other guests. I think in our cloud space where we don't, we assume that because we purchased a server, like we purchased, you know, we turned on a cloud box, that's our cloud box. Whereas, yeah. like, where is it really, like, physically, like, this all comes back to, you know, the physical layer um, that a lot of people in the cloud space totally just put out of their brains. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, no, I mean, that's that's another huge thing. Actually, we have somebody that's going to be coming on, uh, when is it? On 9-11. Um, We're going to have a somebody who does DFIR stuff with um, virtual environments, and they were going to talk about exactly that, like the different challenges, the different security things that, that come into play when trying to, you know, when you're dealing with virtual environments and a bunch of people, a bunch of data, it's all kind of mismatched together, especially like doing, trying to pull like memory images and stuff from like blades, like, so yeah, it's gonna be cool to hear about that. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, the um, next story we have here is the US uh, government is reportedly pressuring Facebook to break messengers encryption um, over the uh, an MS-13 investigation. So actually, that's the broken link. So I'm posting that in the chat here too, in case anybody wants to see. Um, but yeah, this one is interesting. I mean, there's there's always different uh, reasons. It seemed like good reasons at the time for the governments around the world to ask um, tech companies to, you know, weaken their security in some way. Um, but yeah, this is just another example of this. And so it's trying to, it's not like the WhatsApp protocol, which somebody was talking about on Twitter I saw, but it's the, um, the what's it called, end-to-end -end encryption that they have. Um, it mentions here that like Facebook, where was it? Uh, messages regular conversations and not end-to-end -end encrypted, but has a secret mm -hmm. conversation feature, right? Yeah, so the secret conversation, you, it, it works kind of like Signal. You can, uh, you can set the timeout for the... Um, like you can set like the message timeout or when it like, get deleted, and it's supposed to be just completely end to end encrypted. And so that's what the government is trying to break. 
I mean, it's interesting because MS-13, obviously, I guess I think they were the last, I heard, the, the, the biggest gang in the world, right? The largest yeah. organized criminal organization in the world. And um, they're using Facebook Messenger. Like, <laughs> uh, there's been cases where, you know, they're importing South American SIM cards to put in, like, and like Blackberries and shit, like when, when Blackberry was a thing with uh, Rim Messenger, Rim had the Blackberry Messenger or whatever. Yeah. Um, so they've gone through like all these like different stuff and now they've ended up at Facebook Messenger. Like it doesn't seem like a, I mean, I feel like MS-13 should get a new tech guy. It's probably, you know, it's cost effective, you know, if every, all your soldiers are on Facebook anyway, you know. Yeah, right, but Facebook is really, as we were saying, like for, you know, uh, just apps that, that, that you can have like friend circles and stuff, right? It'll create like a graph of like how different people are connected just so you, like you can see who your friends are. But I mean, that's just an example of what, you know, there's there's Multigo plugins and stuff that can do the same kind of thing, right? So yeah, uh, just, it seems like, you know, maybe like it's just a really good way, like Facebook would be a really good way if that's what they're using to track what gang cells, you know, what gang members and what gangs are in touch with, like, other cells of the gang and stuff. It just seems like, I don't know, it's... Well, that's the, the sort of I'm info on. that Facebook would totally provide if, if they were asked to as well, which is interesting <laughs> that they're pushing this one encryption thing because if they are on Facebook, then, you know, it's pretty much public. I mean, yeah. I think we... We, I think we know that MS-13 are pretty, um, you know, like sophisticated when it comes to criminal activities. Like that's been sort of shown in the past. So maybe, maybe, maybe this is like a, a ruse. Like maybe they're like low-level street soldiers are using like, you know, the guys, the fall guys are using <laughs> Facebook Messenger, and the feds are like, oh yeah, look, we've we've got them now, boys. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's just another one. Like they found some other reason to try to get into some sort of encryption, like, or some sort of encrypted app somewhere. I mean, if, if they can, it, the problem is it's, it's about setting precedents, you know, like it, it's, if they can coerce a company into unlocking their encrypted messenger, then they can like force any company to do that. You know, it's just yeah, a matter they have and to just go forward. Oh, and it's always like, you know, it puts the company you're doing government, like pushing this kind of thing. Yeah. This company is like, oh no, we're protecting MS thirteen. Like that's that's what your like statement has to be to the public. Yeah, it's not a coincidence that this is a Mexican gang. <laughs> I think they're are they Ecuadorian. Yeah, no, they're all over, they're all over Central America. But yeah, um, yeah. No, I mean, it's definitely just another a boogeyman and and person to use as a way to um, you know garner support for. Weakening encryption. Same with the San Bernardino people. San Bernardino people, like they've, there's a million ways to get around that. They proved it by, I think, with Celebrate that unlocked the phone for them. Like, there's ways around a lot of different things without having to just do like. That's like, I don't know. It's just, it's like the most extreme solution. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the um one of the things that was brought up in the um the Australian bill was that uh they wouldn't introduce any systemic uh, ways to break encryption, whereas this, the FBI is straight up asking, like, you know, put in a systemic way for us to break everybody's encryption. Again, same yeah. arguments we saw with iPhones, arguments we saw with all kinds of different shit, so. 
Well, it's yeah. funny the timing of this too, as in like there's that new story about that uh, Australian teenager who like broke into Apple. And it's like, wow, yeah. if there was some encryption backdoor hiding on Apple servers, <laughs> right. boy, that could have gotten been really easy to get. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So um, the next thing that we have on our list here um, is pretty cool, actually. Um, wish I knew about this on Saturday, where there's the new turning tables technique that bypasses all Windows uh, kernel protection and mitigations. Um, so this was presented at B-Sides Las Vegas. And this is a, uh, what's it called? A way to basically corrupt some shared page tables and be able to access that. I mean, just be able to like escalate privileges through that. So yeah, um, pretty uh, interesting. Is stuff. there a Metasploit module yet? That's a, that's all we care well, about. Well, probably <laughs> very, very soon, I would suppose. I mean, <laughs> this will be in a local uh, multi escalate. Um, but yeah, this is uh, interesting though. I like this. I want to watch this talk. I just saw this like I think today. I added this. But yeah, it's like it's basically like I don't know, like DLL poisoning, but like in memory. <laughs> Pretty much, it seems like. Um, if you're poisoning shared libraries in memory. So, yeah, it's pretty sweet. Yeah, there was, uh, I mean, a talk I saw at uh, a Ruxman a few m weeks ago, like a little thing here where um, one method was, like, loading a library a second time in your own space to, like, find the offsets and, and then use them against, like, stuff that was loaded in memory by other processes as well. So Yeah, I mean, that, that like seems like that would similar, be... Similar yeah. stuff in here as well. It's all Windows internals. I, I don't know shit about Windows internals. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. Uh, what I think is interesting is like this is only everything that's presented here is just desktop level. If you're de dealing with like sensitive information, you wouldn't be you know dealing with that locally or on a user machine. So it's just funky. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's 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 like new research, so I'm inter I'm interested in seeing how it's actually leveraged in the wild. Yeah. But. Cool. That's sweet. They already got guys, videos up, though. Yeah. Were you guys yeah, at uh, like six months for DefCon videos? Were you guys at Besides Las Vegas? Did anybody go? I did not. No, sorry. Nope. I think everyone was there. I think we were all just drinking on our own. Yeah. Oh, so I meant to. I meant to group this with the other scam. Um, so there's this. The next story that we have is the. Uh, people who made half a million dollars by extorting people and pretending that they saw them watch porn. Um, <laughs> so basically, like they were, they were saying they were like sending people messages um, saying that they have videos of them or like filming them like watching porn and looking at porn, and they are gonna like you know basically show people. Um, yeah, they said that they recorded a video of you with your webcam and what you were watching and they asked for uh $1400 in bitcoin for this nice so do you guys remember <laughs> uh I mean, not that now they are but people actually did give this give them money and they they received about 78 bitcoins so they had like a, a thousand transaction or so yeah, so it sucks for unicorns. Just said exactly what I was about to say. It sounds like an episode of Black Mirror, which the episode of Black Mirror was uh, obviously Black Mirror, so it was a little bit darker and a little bit more sick. 
But um, basically the, the same concept. The, the episode starts off this exact way. Um, and, and yeah, like, I guess <laughs> Dan said it, like, don't be, if, you know, you know, if you don't have anything to uh, be ashamed of, then whatever. I mean, lots of people are out there looking at porn, and, I mean, I guess it depends. Yeah, if you're looking at some weird shit, then you put, like, that's probably what people are most, they're probably the people who paid, right? Yeah. Yeah, and if you're watching yeah. porn, like, why isn't your shit covered? Or why are you holding your phone, like, below your dick if you're fapping, to be honest? Like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> Like, yeah. <laughs> if you can see, if I mean, see my O face, I don't give a shit. But if you can see, you know, my cock on cam, I might care. It's just good. Uh, I know. <laughs> but uh, you guys, you guys cover webcams and shit, right? I, I'm sure yeah. everyone here has a sticker on their webcam. Like, yeah. I wish that we got those uh, dark web unfriended, whatever uh, custom webcam covers. Um, right. This is exactly uh, yeah the the movie. Where they're all almost, on webcam and shit. Maybe we could have like a new genre. It's like uh, a tag could be like covered with scotch tape, tape or something. <laughs> you think it would be kind of creepy though if you think about it. It's like, check out this half porn. I'm like, dude, we're like literally just invading other people's privacies. That's not cool. <laughs> yeah. It's like those Japanese somethings. Okay, I'm going to stop there because I'm just going to go ahead and actually reveal too much information about myself. <laughs> I, I got a funny little story. There was, uh, there was a guy that I went to school with, and uh, we caught him one time, um, and he was looking at MILF porn, right? Like, sort of like, you know, 45-plus-year-old women porn, and we were like, and, you know, we are in high school, and it was like, oh, lol. And you like, you know, I don't, I don't even know if he knows this, but then he ended up marrying a chick, like, uh, twice our age, like, I think sometime near the end of, like, after, like, after the end of high school, which is, like, hilarious. Before we get into some real weird shit, uh, let's talk about Pike. <laughs> let's um. No, let's not talk about weird shit anymore. We, we all know what I do. <laughs> no, it's just yeah. We, we got we got a bunch of news to cover, so. Uh, no, oh, no more Sunday. Hold on. No, no more Sunday fun day. Yeah, so, let's talk about that. Cause what? Um, so, yeah, there's no Sundays because we all kind of... Oh, I, I do need to sleep on Sunday. Um, most people are pretty exhausted on Sundays. We're going to try to find some new times to do stuff, but we will see what happens. Um, I don't know. I just needed a bit more time, too, because I've been hosting it all. So we're going to figure out something. But... Yeah, no, I think one is good. Yeah, one is definitely good for now. If we need to do Sunday, then absolutely we could. But we, I don't know. I feel like I feel like I'd rather focus on quality content over quantity. Uh, and yeah, I mean, we can also always like record content and release it on YouTube instead too, instead of doing yeah. it that way. Just you don't have to like up. have a live like you don't you don't have to do it as a live show every single like time. Yeah, we should definitely do a pre-recorded one sometime. That'd be really funny, and just yeah. have everybody. Uh, you have to everybody who's listening will have to guess if we're uh, mm-hmm. live. Yeah, <laughs> we might not be live right now. Whoa! Yeah. Twilight Zone. No, nah, right, it so, just allows uh, us to do it whenever and then upload it. Yeah, we'll do a poll on Twitter. <laughs> That's how everything gets settled these days. 
Um, the next story that we have here, though, is about Verizon th throttling fire department's unlimited data during the California wildfire. So, Pike, I know that you had some... Yes, yes, I can actually give you lots of uh, information about that. Please do. So, pretty much what the article is running down is saying that a lot of fire departments, actually, they have, like, uh, uh, jetpacks, or they use, like, data off their uh, work cell phones to pretty much actually do work and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, OES, uh, short for Office of Emergency Management, that's Cal California's kind of, like, joint venture with, like, surrounding fire departments. I mean, they... The office supplies a fire engine. They go respond to wildfires, uh, but the most majority of what they do is kind of structure protection and then also like medical stuff. So, if there's like a wildfire in like a normal area, they'll go and camp out at like some guy's house, make sure it doesn't burn down. And <laughs> just knowing firefighters stuff like that, I bet you they're just like, oh, I'm just gonna go and watch YouTube because we're shitting here all day long. But it does kind of suck when actually they do limit your bandwidth because you really kind of need that stuff to actually do work. So honestly, there's two sides to it. Yeah. Um, um, so, like, I have a question. Like, so when during wildfires, um, I mean, I'm just going to assume that there's towers, like cell towers, that uh, like that get knocked out due to fire, whether it's the, the their backhaul or whether it's the tower itself. Um, so, I mean, could we be talking about like bandwidth being severely limited just due to infrastructure loss during the fire? Or is it not, no. the fire's not that big? Uh, what it, yeah, was, it, was, it was specifically like they called and uh, Verizon said, nah, pay us. Oh, well, that's fucking it, cheap. It wasn't like because of like that. It was they said, nah, uh, just keep having shit internet uh, until you pay us money. That's, that's rude. It's very that rude. does happen. And actually, the Verizon and like AT&T, depending on who's contracted with given area, Verizon's more popular because it's actually more coverage in the rural areas, but they'll actually uh, take out a trailer and pretty much have a uh, little portable uh, e-node for cell phones and stuff like that. And they have like a high bandwidth uh, satellite uplink, and they're pretty slick. Like They'll just fire it up in this generator, and it'll provide cell phone coverage in like a given area. That's really cool. They should, yeah, it's like... Uh... Grab some femtos and and hook it up. Get some of them blade RFs out of the box and. <laughs> Jeez, but yeah, um, there's a there's a lot of money and actually a lot of effort that goes into communications during emergency response. It's freaking amazing. If you ever get the chance to see it, definitely sit down and ask questions about it. If you ever get a chance to talk to people, who do it. So on the yeah. quick topic of satellite communications, like I used satellite internet on the plane, it sucked. It was like <laughs> I had like a 1200 millisecond latency to Google. It's great, pretty bad. But I mean, the real the real purpose here with the satellite backhauls, I guess, is uh, is making sure that you know the emergency messages get through. Um, so I know here we use a lot of poxags. Is there not is is that not used um, to sort of coordinate fire teams over there, or is it all all data? Oh yeah, no, it is. Uh, I I know specifically because this is these fires are happening like exactly where I'm from. So I'm very familiar with the infrastructure used by the fire teams and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I know they still use pagers and all that, whatnot, but they have, um, basically what they do is they have a lot of thin clients out in the field and then they all link up. So everyone ha is working off of the same maps and um, you know, basically have like the same all the same shit and resources on these like laptops on these thin clients. And so I'm guessing a lot of it 
was coming from like actually updating all of these resources, all this information. Because we're talking about a 400,000 uh, acre fire right now. Like there's a lot of organization to be done uh, over a size of a thing, like anything that big. Yeah, so you're talking about the Mendocino too. complex? Yeah. Oh yeah, that place is fucking nuts. <laughs> I can tell you stories about that place, but it's yeah, they get pretty crazy really quick. Yeah. So like I said, either way, like it's a really shitty move by Verizon. Oh yeah, but I also dollars of donuts. I'm pretty sure it's just oh yeah, it's fucking sitting in some guy's parking lot doing nothing. Because realistically, when you talk about big instances and stuff like that, they literally have like a truck out there with the satellite uplink that can actually get the internet via that way. It's not like they use like porta packs and stuff like that when they're in the, the camps and stuff like that. They got their own infrastructure set up. Yeah, for sure. Sweet. Um, yeah, the next one that we have here uh, is this group. This is actually from Joseph Cox I just saw earlier today. Um, this group called Intrusion Truth that has been leaking um, Chinese APT crew members' um, names and like doxing them online on their blog. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's been pretty interesting to see just because, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's when you have like, when you're dealing with this kind of stuff, it just, there's foreign laws that are preventing people from being able to get any information about the people that might be doing this to you. Um, and yeah, it's interesting to see that there is a group now that is trying to actually out those people. Dude, do they have a freaking death wish? Well, <laughs> like, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, yeah, this I don't, is Pooh Bear you're dealing with, right? Dude, they're going <laughs> to, yeah. Dude, they're going to, if you, they find out who you are, they're not going to be very happy with you. Like, I, yeah, I don't want to speculate on, you know. Yeah, we've yeah. seen uh, some serious stuff happen to people that fuck with China, so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely, I don't know. I mean, they're, they got to do what they got to do. It's like it's a dirty game, I guess. But, the, um, yeah, I mean, this, this group here, they're, they're doing it, targeting or specifically people who are doing, like, military intelligence and, like, like uh, things like that, like uh, jets, like schematics and things like that. Like, so, yeah, it's like no joke. But <clears throat> yeah, if if you're an operator in China and you get docs like this, like your cover gets blown, like you probably just disappear and someone else sits down at your desk the next day. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Dude, yeah, yeah. But here's the thing, right? So like people who work in these departments, I imagine while there's a great risk to them, they obviously they get uh they get looked after, I would assume, for being, you know, it's probably pretty highly, I would imagine it's a fairly highly regarded role. I know here in Australia, working for um, the ASD, for example, the Australian Signals Directorate, like it, it's up on billboards. It's like, come work for us, come be a cyber hacker. And, you know, the, um, the types of uh, pay brackets are public because it's all government level stuff. And it's okay, but it's not great. But um, I think. You know, it's a little bit different when you're uh, these guys that, that are getting docs to sort of like that sort of next level up kind of shit, you know? Yeah. That's interesting. Intrusion of Truth doesn't sound like a name that would be made by someone who's a native English speaker. 
Well, I mean, that's the whole point, right? These are like, yeah. I would say that most of the code names and stuff are just automatically generated from whatever. You wouldn't, you wouldn't let a person pick the code name because. That, yeah. Oh, I'm saying like, just thinking about it. There are people who obviously have a, like, we're very familiar and probably can all like speak and read Chinese. Yeah, definitely. That was um. Yeah. I remember when we were talking about uh. A specific exploit that um, Chinese uh, hackers had developed, and I was we're reading a blog about it, and the the flowchart was in um, had you know Chinese labels on it. We were just like, what? Quick! Then we had to grab someone who could translate it for us. <laughs> I was like, if this is what we were doing all day, I'd imagine you know if, if we were if that's what Thug Crowd was doing, we we'd all have to learn Chinese. It'd just be the way that it goes. It's the way she goes, boys. Piss jugs. <laughs> um, so yeah, the the next thing that speak, uh, this is in the same vein as um, as that as far as nation state things go. Um, so yeah, this was an interesting read here about this is from the Intercept about the, how the NSA um, cracked open encrypted networks of Russian airlines, Al Jazeera, and other high potential targets. Um, so apparently, there was like some documents that were released about um, the NSA um, breaking into like VPNs. Like and what's interesting is that they were talking about being able to break into like IPsec and uh, even through some TLS stuff too. Um, but yeah, they have been doing this to spy on news agencies and stuff. <clears throat> I mean, breaking IPsec for the for NSA is not really that big of a deal, depending on the configuration. I mean, there, breaking yeah. Yeah, sorry. breaking the the first level of like phase like like Ike phase two or whatever like mm -hmm. uh, oh, sorry Ike phase one like it's meh. I mean, if, especially if they're using like a um the shared secret, which is just like some string. Yeah, breaking the TLS stuff is like m like a little bit more exciting, but I don't know. Like, this they probably just. It seems like it would be easier to just pop one of the endpoints. Yeah, I mean, we're probably, probably talking about things that weren't configured like. Super properly, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Um, or, or if you intercept the device, you could replace the uh, the cert on the device too, because you're gonna have to install that to to make the shit work after. Oh yeah, we saw during the um, NSA dumps where uh, the USPS were intercepting routers and stuff like that from Cisco going out to clients and installing physical backdoors and stuff. So I mean, like, who knows if they went? You know, this is the NSA. They go to that level. We've seen them go to that level, so it's likely that you know if they just put something in the device before it went out to the customer. What's pissing me off is like I read through this article and you see all the surface level explanations as far as what a VPN is and like what people are doing. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, yeah. you see highly potential virtual private networks. It's just like okay, uh, it's yeah, it's just garbage to read through because it's not really to the point. Like it's kind of offsetting to be honest. Um, one of the things, though, cracking airlines, like, I mean, United have a bug bounty. Shout out to Naffy. Always shout out to Naffy. Um, and, I mean, like, he's owned, like, I know that he's owned United many times. And if that, that's just one airline, that's a large airline. So I don't expect that Russian airlines are any better. You know what I mean? Um, so cracking an airline, whoop-de-doo. Al Jazeera, I mean, it's a media network. Uh, one of the things about media networks is that they, Al Jazeera are putting people all over the world, 
and they're sending them out to, to get stories and, and report back on that information. So they have to have, you know, these tentacles spreading out into countries where intercepts are, you know, lawful within that region and all that kind of stuff. So as a media network, I guess, um, it makes it that their challenge would be you know, securing those back channels for their reporters. Um, and that's very hard. So that, again, I guess there's a high chance for people to slip up, for reporters to send emails that aren't encrypted or whatever, or to, to screw up um, PGP or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I hope they don't, but, you know, they probably do. Yeah, these are two companies with very, very large attack services. Um, and like, if those are the two that are mentioned, uh, you could almost, like, ensure that it's they were owned through some other channel, and then they just ended up with this as their spoils. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like from a writer standpoint, it's not it's not fun to read. It's not <laughs> I mean I guess either. that's why we I guess that's why we like slicing news up anyway, because we have to cut through all the shit that the normies have to understand. Yeah. yeah. It's gonna give an opinion, but yeah, I understand it's written for the general. Yep. Um yeah the next thing they have on here is pretty interesting in that I've never thought of this before. Um, so the black IoT black IoT botnet. So basically, um, this is a description of a botnet that <clears throat> would be in a bunch of high power consuming devices like washing machines, dishwashers, air conditionings, uh, air conditioning units, and using them to just cause massive power drains by turning them all on at the same time in a given geographical area. And, you know, if you can say, turn on 90,000 air conditioners and, uh, you know, 18,000 electric water heaters, um, you know, it's going to be a significant power load at the same time. On I'd any- like to, so I'd just like to shout out to LG Electronics right now. You'll be hearing from me <laughs> soon. Coming at you live. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely an interesting attack vector um, to be able to do that because, I mean, we are putting bigger and bigger things on as IoT devices in the household. I mean, there's, it's not just like your light or something. It's like like your dishwasher, you know, your air conditioning unit. Those are like things that cost a lot of money to run and draw a lot of power. And if somebody can remotely do anything to them, then, yeah, you're pretty screwed. Smart fridge, man, not hot dog. No hot dog. Um, <laughs> suck it, Jin Yang. So, like, I, I just want to point out that, like, with all these devices, um, when we think about the uh, electrical circuits within a house, um, a lot of them are on a separate circuit. So you might flip all the breakers on your house. You know, you've got every power point turned off, every light turned off. You know, you might have the – and then you've got one separate maybe for your fridge or for your air conditioning, for your, uh, for your washer. And these are the IoT devices that, that I've seen in these um, type of machines are have been like system on a chip, like Linux boxes that um, are basically powered by the device, even like when the device itself is off. So the system on a chip is on at all times because it's used for you to connect. Like it connects to Wi-Fi or whatever or NFC or whatever type you've got. I know there's different types of washers with NFC and stuff. Pressure cookers, like I got a Bluetooth pressure cooker. That's pretty cool. What the? Oh, you got Don't worry. Uh, a Bluetooth pressure cooker? Yeah, I have a Bluetooth pressure cooker, but it's um. That's pretty cool. It's like, no, it's got me- uh, 12. It's got a mechanical, it's got all mechanical failures, uh, fail safes. And then 
the most you could do is scold somebody if they didn't realize that it was under pressure when they opened it. But good luck. Like, it's not not as dangerous as it sounds, unfortunately. Um, so, like, but like looking at these types of devices, like fridges and fridges, washers, air conditioners, they're on, they're on different circuits. They're on 24-7. You leave the house. They're still on. They're still connected to the Wi-Fi. They're still connected to the Internet. They might be connected to a Google Home or some other, like, Alexa or whatever. Um, so this system on a chip is on 24-7, accessible, and if you give it a command, it turns the device on. So while you might think, oh, I've turned everything off, like, you know, the, the whole purpose of the device is to, the, of the system on a chip is to turn the primary device on or off completely separate from the rest of your housing circuits. So. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely ways to, like, mitigate against this sort of thing. Um, yeah, don't put it on the fucking internet. Yeah, specifically by, by that as the first one. But yeah, the, the fail safes and things is definitely another interesting thing to think about. Because I mean, we've seen research into tons of different stuff where if you can turn off any fail safes or just power on something at full power and there's no, there's no checks on that, there's nothing that's protecting itself from exploding, then it will explode. Yeah, um, I'd like to uh, shout out to Shabam for owning uh, the thermostat of uh, a large gaming company and turning the heat up and then bricking it by accident. And <laughs> <laughs> hey, what thermostat um, was it in the first place? Uh, it's not my story to tell that part, oh. but uh, yeah. It was, uh, it was a thermostat in a building. I believe he turned the temperature up and it was bricked afterwards and they came in in the morning and it was really hot. So, well... Pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um... So yeah, we have a bunch of good reads in our good reads section, so I suggest you check those out. Um, a bunch of cool research talks that have come out, as well as the read about, uh, I just like the headline, I just hacked the state election, I'm 17, and I'm not a very good hacker, uh, is an awesome uh, headline and story. And there's also the Intel advisory about the bugs we saw, um, and then a survey about companies, a bunch of companies got hit by crypto jacking malware. Um, but yeah, I just want to throw a one-liner in here about the uh, the PHP uh, stream handler for um, the file, the PHP archives. Oh, yeah. Like fucking duh. Like we saw this with like uh, Base sixty four decodes. We saw it with like all different stream handlers over the years. There's been like Zlib, like a shitload that turned out like, hey, you can get code execution through this stupid stream handler, and it turns like what could be any other URL into some dumb shit and like who the hell put this in here? Why think yeah. before you act, please PHP. <laughs> oh damn. Um, so yeah. Um, Zuff, do you want to get into our main topic now? Sure, man. Um, I guess so, let's bite it off. Wait, what? Let's bite it off, man. Start. All right. Hell yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I guess do you want to introduce yourself a little bit to the people who are listening. Um, what do you do? How long you've been doing it, etc. Well, I'm Zuff. I'm like a self-taught. Uh, I guess at this point, like full-stack engineer. I do DevSecOps. Ops. I do a lot of automation, a lot of remediation. I do like full pen testing, full you know whatever it may be. Really, if it's public, private, whatever you're dealing with on multiple layers. So. I think it's a good talk for anybody listening to that does focus on security that's coming up from an admin background or who's just grinding in the game. Um, so, I think any at any point, like coming even from security, you should know what the hell you're looking at in the first place. 
and that's my experience. But is it safe to say that if it plugs into the wall, it's under your domain? Exactly, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, whether or not you do like on-site, off-site, uh, split domains, whatever you're doing, configuration-wise, I, you know, I'm always willing to and open to questions that people have and trying to help them out. So, yeah, and you have those battery control, battery-operated can, devices under your control as well, too, right? Oh yeah, man, all the UPSs. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I guess, um, I guess from your standpoint, do you want to just start? talking a little bit about the basics of what you do. I mean, actually, how about you tell us what defensive automation actually is? Uh, defensive automation is being like proactive in what you're doing on every layer. So if you're doing like third party, if you're doing patching, um, whether you're doing, you know, I work specifically in the Windows world and, you know, it's kind of self-defeating, but I deal, deal with Unix as well and keeping that stuff up. And I, I do have my little one-offs here and there. Um, that's just kind of where I came from. Like I've always I built hardware since I was probably like 12, 13 years old, just for gaming purposes. And ever yeah. since then, just kind of expanded on that knowledge. But um, I mean, <laughs> as far as this stuff goes, it's it's at the point now where it's kind of ridiculous, and I kind of want to get into the consulting space and doing what I think's best and what I know's best from my own experience being in this for a decade. Yeah, so I guess um, maybe we could walk us through some of the phases of sort of planning out the defensive strategy that you're eventually going to automate. Because I feel like it's something that we people talk talk shit about blue team stuff, or they talk shit about people who are just sysadmins, and they say, oh, those lazy sysadmins, stupid sysadmins, whatever, stupid DevOps people. But a lot of the time, stuff happens because of the way the tools are built and the way that they are configured and even sometimes recommended to be configured in a way that is that is not secure. Um, the same thing with you know any sorts of you know operating system or anything that you're bringing on. You know, so I guess from uh, I guess we can start off with like a, a big scope and then and then narrow it down. But I guess how do you sort of approach coming on to say like a new network if you started a new job or you're going to consult? How would you start looking at what needs to be taken care of first and how do you go about that? Yeah, um, I, I think the most important thing is you look at the vendor tools that you're using, you look at vendor solutions that you're implementing, and you always question that in the first place. First and foremost, like you should always yeah. be digging as deep as you possibly can. But I think that from a defensive standpoint, dealing what you're dealing with and being able to, like, if, if you're given domain access, for instance, you should be looking at, you know, DACP, DNS, you should see what's publicly accessible, what's private. Um, a full inventory is like your first start for sure. Um, and having a good grasp at that is incredible. Like if you can if you can run a tool like for instance Landsweeper, which is just Unix, Mac, Windows based, like it doesn't matter what stack you're looking at, you're able to scan that with creds. It doesn't matter what kind of device it is, if it's SSH only. Um, you can always get a full list as far as what's running on that box, what version it is, when it was installed, uh, who the last user to access it was. Um, and from a defensive standpoint, that's like that's that should be your go-to and that should be your key to run from. Yeah. No, that's definitely good. Um, taking inventory is like the first thing you do, you know, on attack or defense side. So yeah, that's awesome. Though. What was that tool again that you described? Uh, Landsweeper. It's a, like a full suite inventory tool. And if you have under, I think it's like 100 assets, it's totally free. And you can do custom SQL reporting as well. And what I tend to do is 
Um, if there's a cumulative update or like a critical security update, I'll run custom SQL reporting against it and I'll pull results back and, you know, oh, fuck, that's my moment to, you know, shine or push that shit out as soon as possible. Yeah. And that's the way it goes. It's more it's more of the reactive side for sure. But, um, you know, if it's past Tuesday, there's no way to be proactive about it. So um, I just wanted to say, like, I've seen some stuff on your uh, on your GitHub where you've written some scripts that could really help some people, but uh, uh, particularly around uh, emailing logs out. Um, like in PowerShell, yeah. like, uh, can you give us some examples of some times when, you know, you would employ this to be like, Hey guys, read these, like these logs need to go somewhere. Um, read them. And then what people should, what you would recommend that people do them, what logs they should look at and what they should do with them. Well, dealing, dealing with DevOps is a weird thing too, because you're, you're sitting there and you're supporting developers all day. So I don't have a lot of like free time, which I tend to do at night. Like I tend to dig into my own stuff, but if you're doing DevOps, they want like the fastest results or the most, you know, the automated process, the most secure way. So um, what I have written in PowerShell is a lot of like SMTP, a lot of uh, custom SQL reporting. So you can like run, you can run custom SQL query file that you might have sitting there. You can output it to simple text and you can ship it back over. Um, I also have stuff that does that same exact thing for like custom Windows services. So if something is having an issue, um, you basically automate it to send it to a developer and that developer can then look at it and give you some proactive advice or like something that you should run or something that will hopefully resolve the issue because I work in like custom software right now. So it's, it's definitely an ongoing game of trying to keep on top of literally everything. So do you, uh, are there a lot of times when you see stuff that the developer does and you just like, dude, stop. Or do you just kind of have to run with, like right now, you're just kind of like running with whatever developers do and like, you know, no, sweep you don't up run with whatever developers do. You know better than that. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, I know. I just you, want if, you to tell me. No, no, yeah. If your security is like on a stack level, you, you should know what you're running. You should also be, if you're doing like custom software as a service, for sure, that should be something you proactively um, bone scan. That should be something you also check for, you know, false positives. And that should be something that's related back to developers as well as like someone who's hopefully an exec that you can rely on in the company. And you put them on that and hopefully, you know, that developer gets on their shit and they resolve that issue quickly in my experience. Hey, uh, Zuff, do you do a lot of uh, like network, like real time monitoring stuff, like intrusion detection, sort of like uh, watching what's on the wire, you know, like uh, that, that sort of stuff? Of course, man. Uh, you always have to. You have to see like what people are running and what people are trying to do browser side. It's incredibly important. I think a lot of people that run into um, operation center jobs just tend to get almost centered on this is this is my duty and this is what I should do, even though it's not. Uh, even though they should, you know, in my opinion, they should experience way more of a full stack and what you're running and what your dependencies are and how how they're upkept and how you automate you know, the patching or defense side of things. That seems like a whole other science to me, um, being able to come up with like signatures or like anomaly detection, or just like how, how you handle this like fire hose of, of data that's going back and forth uh, or over the network. And why why is that, Readme? Well, I mean, I just like personally, like I've, I've, I've taken uh, like a network or like a company that isn't doing any intrusion detection uh, or network monitoring stuff. And when you go from like nothing to something, 
it's it's kind of it's just kind of a challenge like looking at like what you like what are you looking for just deciding what what you're looking for because you could you could literally look at everything and sort of paralyze yourself with like massive logs you or, can yeah it's yeah. it's rough to it's rough to like definitely bridge that gap between like what what you know for from my standpoint, what event IDs am I looking for? Where is someone coming in from? Like, what is this IP something that should even be accessing here? Like, I've had times too where stuff does get misconfigured, even by like my superiors, and they'll, you know, they'll leave stuff publicly open. And then I see like someone in China is running a dictionary attack at five in the morning. Great. <laughs> How did this happen in this place? Yeah. So that, that does definitely happen. And it's, it's, it's weird because um, in AWS, for instance, if you, if you do like, virtual private connection migrations and you're moving stuff to a totally different network these are like common mistakes you're going to see but if you can proactively look at this stuff and um like landsweeper as a tool it's not a sem okay but if you know what you're looking for and you can build your own reports and you can put them on a dashboard for you to look at and query quickly across the domain um it's incredibly powerful I think too many people are focused on um, SEM systems and custom rules and IDS right now when they shouldn't be. They should be thinking about it as a more simplistic thing. Uh, if you were to shill a certain vendor's uh, SEM solution, which one would you shill? <laughs> I won't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I won't tell you that, but yeah. We won't right, go there. Cool. Um, no, I'm not going to say Splunk either. So you're talking about uh, you're talking about AWS and stuff now. A lot of people migrating, um, you know, from their their physical shit they might have in the back of their office onto to cloud mode. Um, I mean, what kind of like you, we were talking a little bit before, and you said you're dealing with like a lot of internal companies, like uh, rather than external facing stuff. Um, like, what kind of stuff ups do you kind of see when people are like trying to get stuff out of their out of their little DCs and onto onto the cloud? Like, what's the common mistakes you see? To be honest, it's not really mistakes. It's people being scared to even like make that leap in the first place. And I think that's kind yeah. of where like I use AWS, man, and I fucking hate like AWS terminology and what's happened and what they describe things as because, to be honest, that's the hardest thing you'll wrap your head around. Yeah, their documentation is so big, and if you're like an old school sysadmin and you're tasked with devopsing your old ways of doing stuff in AWS, it's like it's a whole other ballgame. Yeah, it's a whole other ballgame until you wrap terminology and you say like what it really is and what you know what it is and right. isn't. Because like if you've ever used EC2, you know that that's just a Zen server backend running in a you know a data center that Amazon owns. That's all yeah. it is. Mm -hmm. um, if you're dealing with like S3, those are just file shares. You can expand, map them any way you want to. You can map them locally as NTFS. Like, as far as setting up access controls around that, though, that's the fucking important part. Yeah. Like, you don't want shit wide open anywhere. And I think that's um, that's what any you know researcher, defense, or attacker should think about. Is most of this stuff might be misconfigured because someone someone on the admin side or engineering side might be a fucking scrub and it happens more often than not and i think that like coming into red teaming and seeing what you guys do it's astounding to me because i just i i've been taught and coached for years to not make the stupid mistakes and look yeah. at what i'm doing in depth and take my time to process i definitely Speaking think of, oh sorry what no you, you can go I was going to say, I definitely think that there are certain things about AWS and the way that you set it up that it's it's like 
like even with like uh, security groups and stuff in in you know like the different rules that you can apply it's like instead of like a text file that you can just edit it's like you have to like map it out and put like things that you want higher priority over first on this like drop down list and like move them around and stuff sometimes it's just like it gets like confusing to just understand that that's actually what's fixing it like there's no like like text file that you could open up and just say hey like here's what the rules are here's what the script is here's what the best practice is it's like comparing it to screenshots and documentation that may be out of date and like yeah it's a lot of stuff yeah i think the route tables are probably the best um you know uh example of that like because you know in, in aws on your subnet you have a route table that you configure through your uh through your little web interface or through your command line or whatever but then if you actually change the route table in the box, like networking just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And that's a so, that's a yeah. damn good way of putting it, to be quite honest. Like security groups is something that you should be thinking about exactly like you had said, route tables. That's what they are. Um, and it's it's funky to see things called security groups when you're used to thinking about them in the past as something completely different. But when you bite off this um, when you bite off this migration beast, it's it's a shit ton of research and it's something that you should be you know either being paid or proactively be doing because it's a damn good skill to have and yeah. when, you, when you look at this stuff and you're doing like whether it be like iam which is security groups via aws who has access to what like even just within the web panel and then you you, you know you talk about uh, security groups and you're doing port traffic or you're doing ip filtering depending on if it's public or private um, yeah those are things that you all need to actually proactively communicate to your clients or whoever is using your stuff and, you know, make them aware of, because that's something they might, you know, even be able to help you with. Um, I think the biggest problem that we have being a part of these communities is we just, and it, I mean, I'll speak for myself. We just assume a lot of the time we assume people have like this damn good knowledge of what we're doing. Um, and they really fucking don't. And that's kind of where, I don't know. I'm trying to like bridge the gap between AWS terminology and what people are doing and give them like a good idea or a guide to move their stuff out somewhere else because you don't want to be at the mercy of your own downtime. You don't want to be at the mercy of someone else's either. Like Route 53, for instance, you see like DNS hijacking or you see S3 stuff go down even when their status page is hosting an S3 with their icons. I don't know if you guys saw that like probably year, year and a half ago. It was disgusting. Yeah, so, yeah. S3 are... went down for uh, was it the uh, US US East or something? And <laughs> took down like nearly everything. Yeah, it was yeah. huge. Half in that. Mm-hmm. And US East being like the biggest regions that you're looking at, but then when you have these different regions, which are just you know physical data centers in different spots in the United States, you also have to consider that level of redundancy and how you're building out your stack. And it's it, it's crucial i mean I, I never want to be the guy who's getting screamed at by the ceo at the end of the day you know yeah. so um how do, how do you feel about like azure like with uh like like aad and stuff like people moving their office ad into the cloud like i, I think it's i don't know there there's comparables everywhere i've never i've dumped into azure for like a couple one-offs man and i'll tell you like application dynamics is a damn good tool that they have when you look at other tools and what they're in cost in comparison that's something that you can um, fully leverage and a developer can in my experience fully understand um, but anything else that you're looking at as far as doing that same level of stuff is going to cost you like 10k a year and i i won't name names or bash anybody but 
yeah, you guys can look at vendors for that stuff for sure. Um, but yeah, that's that's easy stuff though. You you set up application dynamics, for instance. You run software as a service, and if it's web application or if it's device based, it's it costs you next to nothing, and you just you know tie in a couple API keys like you do most services, and you're good to go. So uh, in the cloud, like automated cloud space, um, I guess we've seen a whole bunch of scenarios where uh, IAM keys and shit have been leaked. People, you know, uh, criminals have spun up boxes to do whatever they want, build Insta botnets, mining stuff or whatever. Like, how hard do you slap the wrist of the guy when uh, when he checks a, an IAM key, key into Git? <laughs> kind of get an environment that you're running at that point. Like, I don't know, man. That's now my my developers don't have access. So like when you talk about access control and like what people actually um, should have access to and the level of knowledge you should be able to like touch user access testing or even production. There's only like in my company right now, we have two fucking people. Like if both of us get hit by a bus on the same day, they're fucked, man. But to be honest, like that's the way that it should be. You should never have developers that are touching any kind of you know, user access testing or production environment where they can pull private information. That's just bad practice in the first place. Like if, they, if they're using IAM keys and they're not set up with the proper groups, then that's, in my opinion, disgusting. And whoever set that up in the first place should be fired. But, yeah. I could go on about that all day. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, all right, so like, so patching, I mean, is, is a big task as well. I mean, once you've, you've, you've got your inventory of assets and it might be cloud, it might be not, um, Tuesday rolls around, uh, like, how you, like, and, you know, you've got a mixed environment. What's your, uh, what's your method to, so like, what, what do you patch first? How do you push it out? What's your, what's your go-tos? So I run like a split domain. So anything that I see in like WSUS, for instance, anything that's a cumulative update gets applied, you know, then and there, um, you should have failover set up for your front end, back end databases, just so, you know, whether they're in an ELB or whatever the hell they're doing, they should be able to be fault redundant. Um, you should be able to reboot those things and throw them straight back. Uh, but I mean, as far as third-party tools go, that's kind of where it gets interesting. And uh, I think a lot of people don't know about third-party software. Like, how, how do you patch that and how do you do automation around it? Um, I, I tend to run a tool called Ninite, which is a really damn good tool. You can automate the process for patching and set it to check in, you know, whether it be hour, hourly, daily, weekly. You, you can patch any kind of third-party developer or like ops tool that you can think of, honestly. So it's it's a hell of a headache off my back. And you do that through like applying policies just to machine names and you run like a really light agent on uh, server side. Nice, that's some good stuff. So uh, should link that tool in, uh, in the chat there for everyone listening. Yeah, what's nice about that is you can do you can do a, um, you can do this via cloud or you can do it via local server. So, for instance, like my internal environment, I just have it running on a local server, and you can set up scheduled tasks to do so. 
um, and run it however often you want. And it's never been a problem for my users. It tends to close most things and proactively patch them. If you're in like Notepad++, for instance, though, it won't. Um, so you, you need to know how to kill processes remotely if you actively want to do these things, which you can easily do with PowerShell. You can run it against a list and you can kill everything that you want. But you also might be killing somebody's changes that's proactively working on your stuff. Yeah, I think some of the big big things on there are uh, like obviously Chrome, like Skype if people are using it for business. Uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, apps on there that can easily be forgotten. And you know, a lot of people uh, get that little the little uh, icon in the top right of Chrome. It's like you got to update Chrome now, and then two weeks later it's red. Three weeks later it's still red. <laughs> <laughs> Well, even that, like my contract notifications, you, I, I work in government software. So like a lot of the stuff that we're having to like use or touch is going to be like as disgusting as it is Java dependent, or it's going to use a Silverlight web plugin or whatever it might be, <laughs> or a specific .NET version. So you, you have to be, you have to be paying attention to it. And that's also where I was saying like Landsweeper comes in handy because if I can run a custom SQL query and see what's outdated proactively or what hasn't touched the network in a while, yeah um it's it's good to pay attention to um so do you manage a soe like as well like are you managing like all your assets running like all, all your desktop machines like have you built up a soe and had to to roll it out yeah like everything that everything that i do from like a workstation or a server perspective uh yeah silverlight still exists <laughs> so like <laughs> If I hand you a new laptop, I'm like a new starter. I mean, what's your, uh, how do you, like, and, and you just assume, uh, let's just assume I'm a moron and I like to install like LimeWire or some shit. I mean, I, I, I get my new laptop. Well, exactly, right? So how, what, what's your, uh, <laughs> what, when you're provisioning stuff, like how are you preventing, what's your, what's your way to prevent me from uh, being a douchebag? Um. GPOs and group policies. You can do you can do black and white listing. You can even dig this down into web browser plugins as well. But as far as that level goes, um, I think that's something I should definitely take time to write out uh, because black and white listing in a Windows domain is pretty damn powerful. Um, and protocols as well. Like it, we have an on-site firewall, all right. Like I can figure it to block what I know should be blocked if the peer-to-peer ports or whatever the hell people are doing. That's just stupid. That's something that, you know, that's another thing to look at too is firewall logs and how, however you take them in is the right way to take them in as long as you're proactively paying attention and looking at that stuff. Yeah, nice. But, um, I mean, as far as, yeah, third-party software goes, I, that's something I, I even write the Landsweeper, like custom SQL reports to just pull what's bullshit like what I what I know people don't need. And then from there, I, I just remotely uninstall it most of the time. And then I'll, I'll blacklist it and say, good luck getting it back. <laughs> like, you know, it, it comes from being a dick for sure, but it comes from having a good understanding of what should, shouldn't be in your network. And especially with like peer-to-peer -peer traffic and torrenting, you're just, you're asking to get fucked. Yeah, I think um, one of my pet, actually two things I dislike seeing on a network is uh, Dropbox and Spotify. This is yeah. noisy as hell, right? And Dropbox is really bad, especially with like the gen gap and, you know, these old fucks who just think, oh, it's great. Like, I can just share whatever I need to across blah, blah, blah. And it's fucking like, no, you shouldn't fucking do that. Fuck you. We're doing this the hard way. Sorry, but this is the way it should be. 
Yeah, it's just like stop all that multicast, just like eating everything up. Yeah. Actually, I, I wonder about Dropbox if if they have like a local solution where if you, you got a thousand people <laughs> using Dropbox. You know, did they even offer something like a local server that can handle that shit so you, you're not syncing a thousand, you know, MP3s from from the internet? Did they do that with OneDrive? I mean, it's called a NAS. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it, but they, they like do Dropbox. Dropbox will sync across uh, the network. Yeah, and so if you've got like everyone's, yeah, if everyone's sharing across the network, that's what all that multicast traffic is. It's basically yeah. beaconing on this Dropbox, and I'm really fucking annoying, even if no one else is running it. Yep. So since we're talking about NASs and stuff, like uh, let's talk about backups. That's one okay. of the pillars of information security. <laughs> yeah. Um, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's, it is. And it's a, yeah, go ahead, Remy. Sorry. No, I'm just curious to get your, your perspective. You know, if you're running, uh, you know, partly in the cloud, partly on, on site and stuff, um, you know, backups are just expensive. And um, there's a, there's a calcula calculation you have to do. <clears throat> for like how how much you know how how much you save uh for how long how how much it costs um can you can you share any wisdom about your uh about your how, how do you feel about backups <laughs> um so backups the first thing you should be thinking about is if you're building birds down how the hell do you get back up and running internally even if they are lesser environments than what you're doing uh, uh i tend to use veeam like vnr and I do encrypted backups over um, a VPN. It's a straight point-to-point -to, -point to AWS. They're fully encrypted backups when they leave. They're encrypted while they're there. But you're also able to easily spin those up um, via EC2 and join them to a fresh domain or to your domain controllers if you spin those up first. Um, but it's not. It's definitely an interesting thing. <laughs> it's like... It, I never would have thought of what if the building burns down, but it's it's incredible how easy that stuff is made through um, sand solutions and shipping that stuff off encrypted and then being able to click a couple buttons, grab your backup and spin it back up within a cloud environment. Yeah. So, uh, um, oh, oh, go ahead. No, let's stick on backups for a while. I was just going to move. Keep it. Yeah. So, um, you know, backups are interesting because it's just it's just sort of a, a money sink uh, until until you need a backup. You know, you get hit with ransomware or or, or something, and um, you know, so do you, uh, you have to split it up like on on site, off site, and stuff. Right. And are you're um, you're backing up like full uh, virtual machines? off-site with, with Veeam like that, fully encrypted to, to the cloud? Yep, fully encrypted traffic to the cloud. And then if you actually look at like S3 pricing, it's really not that bad for like your first, it says like first terabyte or 50 terabytes of storage per month is gonna cost you two cents per gigabyte. Um, so that's also something to consider too, because you bring up a good point, uh, is development spewing out? Like what are they doing wrong? Or what, what where can you cut costs on a, a storage side on an internal domain, how can you save money there? Um, and to be honest, I don't really have many problems with that. Uh, there's sometimes I'll bring like you know a, a 10 gigabyte database back, but, but you know how much is that actually going to cost per month? It's going to be like 20 cents. 
like that's that's worth it and having that redundancy factor there when when you restore something off the cloud though i mean uh it's it say i i don't know say it's a really big da data set like what you know can they just like ship you some hard drives is that an option they can do um they can do like amazon glacier so if you're looking to like actually take a hell of a lot of data and you don't have the real the bandwidth to support it there's uh aws glacier and they'll basically send you a box and that that's something they that's a device they send you and you basically plug it into your local network and back everything you want in the cloud up to it and then so well, oh, yeah. you get me, me on a different topic because whether or not you're doing full indifferentials is a different thing um because the first initial backup and like getting this stuff running is going to cost you a hell of a lot in bandwidth so it's smart to use like AWS Glacier and that way they ship you something, you know, you put, you have like multi-factor on it. You, you set up what you need to back up, you back up what you need to back up, you ship it back to them and then they take care of actually moving that into the data center. Yeah, that's What was great. it called? Amazon what? It's Amazon Glacier, I believe. Look. Yeah. Yeah, Glacier. And then accessing those takes like a while too, doesn't it? Because it's like super... Um, like it's like stored away somewhere. I don't know how. That, I never. It's, it's like it's cold storage basically, and it costs a lot when you want to go get something out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's important for anybody that's looking to move. Like that brings up a good point. If you're looking to move into cloud hosting, how much data is actually going to be there? You need to calculate that and be able to slim down what you do and don't ship back and forth. There's a lot of data. This is dead data. You know. Like people just sit on backups of databases for years and years and don't touch them. So it's something you need to actively think about and prune. One company yeah. I work for backed up every single file on every single system and server every single day and had them taken off site through through tape drives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I worked for oh, I worked um, in the same office as a company who uh Pushed it, they were using SVN, they pushed everything to SVN, and then they would zip the SVN and then FTP that up and wonder why they ran out of disk space. <laughs> GG. Beautiful. Um, but yeah, actually, so talking about backups and, and logs and stuff, how do you, I mean, what tools are you using for logging besides, like, I guess, the Windows event stuff and anything in your IDS and things? Is there any other, like, solutions that you use for like logging, automating, shipping those logs, et cetera? Zuff? Um, I think Zuff's just quickly run to grab a, another beer. Oh, but okay. uh, <laughs> yeah, like um, this, this is pretty pretty good stuff that I'm not sure that how many people actually listening are, are doing. Uh, hopefully people are taking notes of stuff, you know, that they're, they need to be doing, then maybe they're not. Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely I'm going to be sharing this with some people because, I don't know, it's just something that it, you don't always think about when you're doing, you know, automation or, I mean, we're, we're now talking also about cloud migration, too. But, I mean, that stuff also comes into now the technologies that are available to people who want to do automation in their defense and, and make it more modern. The options to do that now are becoming much more robust, and it's a lot cheaper, too. Um, to be able to, you know, employ some tools instead of having to hire some external, um, you know, knock or sock or whatever to handle that kind of stuff. You can do a lot of it internally by using the tools that are offered by, you know, AWS or Azure or whatever you're using for your solutions. You know, um, you, 
That's exactly right. You like, uh, I use like Netsburger for instance, and I just run schedule tasks and I often put them into shares. And then I take those, you take those reports and you can send them over using PowerShell and SMTP. You can send them to whoever the hell needs them and back them up. And just, you, you, there's so much structure around it and it's, it's really damn complicated. And I hope that I can like translate as far as what I'm doing and get people to actually grasp the terminology and what's happening. Like I was saying, I think that's like the biggest gap. And I, I think going to an AWS conference isn't even really, you know, <laughs> isn't something companies actually want to pay for because like I'm going to reinvent in November and it's going to be, it's going to be about 2k a ticket I'm going back to Vegas again, but <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I'm sorry for you, dude. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I didn't gamble much though. Last time we were there, I spent like twenty bucks at DEF CON. I was good with it. The rest Make was like drinks. Good. I won't talk about that price, but <laughs> um, yeah, that's cool though. Oh, so yeah, well, on the topic of like, say, like logging and just handling all this data, as we said, we were talking about this a little bit before. Um, but when we were talking about backups and everything too, like, how do you like log sanely? Because that's the big thing is people will, you know. For compliance purposes or for some random IT managers like obsessive compulsive hoarding, somebody might be handling and, and shipping a bunch of logs. But what, do you, what kind of tools and solutions are you using to sort of manage those kind of things? Because they are useful if you need to, you know, trace back an intrusion at some point. Um, but like, how many is too many? Right. There's like elk stacks. You can run elk stack, and it's actually highly scalable. Scalable, so you can run like Elasticsearch. Um, it's mm -hmm. Elasticsearch, Loggy, and Kubernetes, and that's been really effective for me. And it doesn't take much hardware to do so either. But that's that's a damn good way to keep history and you know a good record of everything that's happened. Um, and if you're not proactively looking at it, like I was saying through like Landsweeper, and you're not checking events on the daily, that's that's a good remediation automation tool to be able to dig back yeah so yeah, do you have like, like cool visualizations too if you're using the elk stack yeah so what the hell was this tool yeah of course it's it's the, it's the photo. Is it one? i have to it's think like, about this for a second yeah so this is like on top of cabana like log stash and cabana there's like grafana and some other things as well Grafana. Grafana is the other one I was thinking about, and like time-sensitive databases and doing influx and setting up. Uh, if you're blending Linux and Windows stacks, that's a damn good tool for it. There's a lot that you can just pull in visual in real time and present. Like, you know, it, the good idea is having something like if you're working for a software as a service, it's smart to have something on the dev floor, right, that people can easily reference or look at and see what's going on. That way, you know, you're not the only one looking on four to five monitors. There's also people that are keeping an eye maybe on it on the day to day for you to say like, why is this spiking or why is this happening? And then that gets into another topic where you can, I use a lot of PowerShell to do remediation server side. If we push something out to prod and it hasn't been load tested, for instance, I'll write something around that to, you know, whether it's recycle an API or whatever the hell it might be. Like I, I do that stuff. So it's, it's almost a self-healing autonomous service. So you do that with like ops view and you can do event handlers there and you can do them in bash and um powershell which are basically both your system languages and you can take advantage of it as well and you can log every time that this does happen and being able to present that every time this does happen then if you don't have effective logging in your software products um gives devs something to reference back to as far as a specific date and timestamp. 
Awesome. So I've been um, doing a lot with uh, like containers are, are like the hot topic. I mean, they have been for a while. Like I'm not a I'm not a container fan, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Like I mean, do you, have you had to deal with them being not a container fan? Um, yeah, I mean, like I've messed around on my own to just dig into Docker a little bit and see like what happens there. But to be honest, I think that that has a hell of a lot of pruning to go through and a lot of maturity. Um, as far as what's posted where, why, and when. Because a lot of these references that are pulling stuff, even from like Docker stores, have infections within them. They're just yeah. outdated pieces of shit. So if you're not setting them up from scratch, I don't think it's a good idea for anyone to dig into right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the other thing, too, as far as just being able to automate defense and everything. But then there are just at the core, Certain things like Docker images in certain cases are insecure by the way that they're deployed. Same with any any tools in general to being deployed stock. But uh, yeah, that's a big, big, big thing. <clears throat> so um, I guess what are some of the, hold on, I have some notes here that we kind of covered and jumped around. Um, so we're talking about like legacy stuff. You're talking about Windows specifically. I'm really interested in hearing your opinions on on like legacy Windows applications that might be still up because I mean the companies with with like you know MS SQL 2000 that they just they can't stop running because whatever is whatever they have is still talking to it. I guess what are some of the sort of strategies that you use and have seen to protect like legacy applications that have to be like public facing and stuff? Ah, fuck! They shouldn't be public, and if they are public, you should be asking the questions why. I mean, to yeah, be it's honest, time to go back to the you know, building floor, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, if if somebody's running something that's outdated and you can't migrate it, then you you're fucked in the first place. Like this isn't a talk for you, and you shouldn't be looking at AWS migrations. You should go back to basics and be cross referencing and moving. And that really disgusts me when people run um, public instances that are pa way past like EOL. Like you said, like 2000. Like holy fuck, I can't imagine. Um, I to be honest, at a company that did that, it's bad. Yeah, I I can't speak from experience there because like I'm. I'm the person who is proactively trying to run the latest and greatest version. And even some of these like government uh, contracts that we have or finance contracts piss me the fuck off when I'm saying like, Hey, I need you to buy, you know, an MS SQL license. So you can pull this backup down and you can do what you need to do. And they're like, Oh, that's going to take us three months. Like what in the fuck? Well, all right, we're going to go ahead and IP filter what you're doing and immediate remediate port traffic to it. And that's how it's going to be like, and that's another thing too is growing pain as far as when you're moving your stack and what you're doing when and whether or not they can access it is a, another story because a lot of government employees are lazy motherfuckers and they're not on top of it and they don't know what the hell they're doing and it's going to take them weeks to fiddle through. Yeah. But so yeah, I don't deal with that because like my... My shit's about as good as it gets, and I think that has a lot more strength than it does um, weakness to us as a software as a service vendor. Because we tend to, like, if we need to call these people and we need to help them set up an instance, we will do so, you know? Like, it's not, we don't want people back in time. We don't want people exposable at any level. So if they can get access to a database backup that's running on an older version of SQL, like, what good is that if someone can pull that information or if their endpoint production isn't up to snuff? Yeah. So now, with the stuff that you might be, I saw some stuff you were working with, some snippets some from Twitter earlier with uh, using Nifbato, like Amazon or AWS Python library. Um, what sort of stuff 
do you do as far as deployment and like do you do any hardening in what you like what you're like what I guess AMIs you're deploying or whatever you're deploying. Do you have any sort of uh, like hardening strategies that you use prior to deploying? Yeah, like AMIs, for instance. If even if you if you set up an AMI, an AMI is basically an image of an operating system. So you're capturing at that point in time and you're spinning it back up and you can replicate it or clone it. Uh, so when you're doing that, you also need to think about how old this clone or this image is and what steps you need to take to get it up to you know up to par. Um, and that's something a lot of people don't think about. A lot of people just put something and make it publicly accessible for redundancy reasons or whether they're in a hurry. Um, but what I do a lot of the time is I'll just have a couple, I'll have a couple ports open that just tunnel back to my public IP on site. So like I'm the only person proactively accessing this. If it needs to be patched, it needs to be patched. If I need to patch it, update it, and then recapture the AMI, I do so. It saves a hell of a lot of time when you're, you know, dealing with a server from scratch and you're talking about user groups, um, firewall traffic, and everything. Really, it's it's something people should consider. Definitely, is how how old these AMIs you're capturing are and whether or not they're public or you know available to other people. Yeah. So on that topic of like, have, if you have a you know a bunch of stuff you need to patch. Uh, like a lot of dudes probably listening are pretty familiar with like maybe Chef, Puppet, Ansible, Salt. Yeah. Like, do you have a preference or do you, is it whatever they throw at you? I like Salt. <laughs> I, like, yes. I, I like Salt just because of the community base of it. I'm not much of an Ansible playbook guy. I'm not much of a Puppet guy because I didn't come from Unix. So it's like totally really over the wall for me. I've never tried to wrap my head around it. I don't have the time to really dig into that. Do you uh, do you end up using it like is it is it become a big part now like because I mean everybody's these are a lot of technologies a lot of people talk about but I mean when I think about um, like say just Ansible's something I'm familiar with like um uh, you know I, I think about it as a magic SSH like bash script SSH is into a box and runs some stuff and like before that that's what you did like you you know you wrote bash scripts to automate like IP tables or whatever like firewall rules and stuff like that. Um, I mean, is it a lot of people want to want to talk about it like it's something new? Like, do you feel like you're still looking at the same thing in a different way, or is it a new way to look at things? Like, like what is it from your perspective? I mean, that's kind of where Nine Nine compares to me as far as patching and keeping on my infrastructure level. I tend to I tend to lean back on that quite a bit. Um, as far as learning those skills at our current point in time, I don't think that they're all that valuable. Um, and that's coming from a Windows guy. So whether or not you guys lean in them more so in Unix is understandable. But from my perspective, it's not all that valuable. Yeah, I guess you've got a lot of like SACM and, and stuff like that as well, group policies and stuff to back you up. Whereas, uh, and, and, yeah, like a, a lot of time when there's a bunch of Linux boxes, you know, they're not part of a domain like you'll find, you know, in a Windows environment. So well, even I like guess that's SACM. Where the gap is. Even SCCM, you can break down and get even cheaper these days. Like even if you're running multiple solutions, they're probably going to be more effective and less of a pain in the ass than SCCM. Um, I've been I've walked into jobs and they're like, we want you to strip SCCM out on every level. Like, please get rid of this and please implement multiple layers to deal with the same issue. 
and they've been cheaper from a licensing standpoint. So nice. So what are some of the, uh, do you have any horror stories, I guess, about things that you might have walked in on and, and, and worked on and ways that you were able to sort of address those challenges? Well, I mean, I could, I can tell you some low level bullshit, but yeah, we can go there. <laughs> like, I don't know, dealing with CM, public, publicly accessible C- CMSs is always a problem for people. And I've never really understood it. But um, I walked into this job and they had been hacked like six months ago on a bunch of their public sites. And it's like, well, what did you have proactively in place? How often was this person ches- checking them? And how strict were they on doing so? Um, like, WordPress. WordPress is fucking disgusting. I know we hate it from a security perspective from PHP. As far as running in the stack, it's gross. It's something you you know have to constantly, not constantly, but proactively move to a newer version and remediate. But even from there, like what plugins are you running? How many plugins are you running? How smart is your marketing person? Can they actually code front ends or are they dumb as all shit? And that happens a lot of places too. So in order to automate that or remediate it, I, I run management tools. So I'll tie in, you know, using an API agent, tie into a dashboard and be able to like proactively patch massive amounts of publicly accessible sites on the fly. And that's another thing you should pay attention to. If you're, if you know, if you're running plugin level or you're running core level, there's been a hell of a lot of core level in the past year, year and a half that I've seen that makes me want to throw up. But it's still something we have to run because I'm not going to be the person who bites off the you know front end code. I've got enough shit to do. That's kind of where I'm at. Understaffed and undervalued, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Don't yeah, I mean every, everything is uh, to the landfill. <laughs> everybody's uh you know happy when everything works but the second something doesn't it's your fault right oh yeah and even if you try to explain it to them technically they, they won't understand you uh, just buck the fuck up or get out but yeah i'm i don't know i'm trying to like write a pretty big piece of documentation i don't know that we'll really have time to like cover a lot of this stuff as far as how I run it or why, but I think that I'm going to contribute something to the sex juice that's going to be worth reading and it's going to have a lot of terminology translation and hopefully be the simplistic thing people can look at it as far as proactively moving to the cloud and what they should be doing and why beforehand. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. That's Is there anything that we, uh, that we didn't ask you or cover that you would like to cover? Um... You can, we have... 30 minutes, so we can go however long you want. Well, maybe is there anyone in, uh, in the Twitch chat that has a question or on Twitter? Yeah, I'm I open actually, to that. I'd... With well, everything, I got, a, I got a question if you guys can. Yeah. Uh, so, with everything moving to the cloud and with all these processor level exploits, um, isn't it something we should be steering away from? If we value our own intellectual property, well, it depends on how often the or how proactive the vendor is at remediating the issues. So that's a damn good point. Like I was saying earlier, AWS is running on Zen Server. As far as what hardware they're running, I can't really dig into that on an inventory perspective. But uh, like Amazon, for instance, I'm pretty sure that this is you know security is their main focus. So if there's something released or if there's something being poked at, they're poking at it as well. 
I, I can't think of a company that would do more as far as a security perspective that's also a cloud provider. And yeah, that's personally, but the stuff's pretty fault redundant. And I say pretty because there might be a breach soon. <laughs> <laughs> there always wants to be a breach soon there, right? Mm-hmm. And if there is, it's it's all gone, isn't it? Like, is it's really high stakes then? Yeah, for sure. I think that if you get to that point or you get to that layer in the first place, it's definitely a big issue for that company. And then you start looking at alternatives. Um, Jack has a question saying, uh, is there anything that you would, any sort of open source automation tools that you could use in a VM lab um, to like play around and improve I guess your skill set because I mean this is something to like build, but you know as people are trying to learn this stuff, you know is there anything that they can use any repos like any good? Uh, yeah, you're talking a lot about PowerShell scripts. Like, are there any like good repos for that kind of stuff or stuff to play with? Well, my repos are pretty good. I don't know if you can mess around with this stuff. I also have like a write up that was on. It's just like on my personal blog for domain controller setup. And if you can set up a domain controller, then you can set up a mail server. You can set up a front and back end server. Um, you can just tie it all in, and from there, like, it's it's a matter of what you're running. Like I was saying, Landsweeper for 100 assets is free, so you can run that too. You can you can do Ninite. I don't know how effective you can run Ninite without a purchase license, but um, these are all reputable reputable vendors that I pay for now for a reason. They save me damn good time. So these are it's it's you know start from scratch and set up your lab and then go from there. I think if anybody doesn't have a lab in this industry, they definitely should should be you know poking and patching all the things you possibly can. As far as open source, though, it's been a while. Like if you had asked me three or four years ago, I would have I would have had a long list for it. Yeah. So, so uh, that's a good question, Mike. Right. We just mentioned Puppet and Chef and and uh, those other kinds of solutions that automate. Uh, Maintenance of Linux systems, those are, I think, relevant to his question. So, like, uh, you, you mentioned you've been doing this for a while. Like, like how long are we talking? How, how, how long is you? How, ten years how of self-taught bullshit. You got a ten-year-long <laughs> ten gray beard. Yep. You can set up NetSparker as a trial license, and you can talk to them as far as what you do and don't want to do. You can run... Um, uh, a local software install of it, or you can do a cloud-hosted NetSparker as well. I, I recommend that if you're running anything cloud-hosted, you definitely be behind some form of multi-factor authentication. If that vendor doesn't do it in the first place, then fuck them and move on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we have a question from the Twitch chat. Uh, what would you, or some Nicole Beckwith, what would you tell somebody new who would, is trying to get into this space? Uh, say either a sysadmin or you know, DevOps engineer, and they want to, to go at this from the defensive perspective? I'd say, my, we kind of covered this a little bit earlier, but if you're, if you're stepping into this stuff and you're doing it um, RSAT, if you're running in a Windows environment, RSAT is going to be your best fucking tool. Um, like I was saying, I have a personal blog about setting up domain controllers. Don't use default accounts, of course. Like, rename all the things you can. Use strong passwords. Use um, like I, I use a locally 
encrypted, but it's also backed up password database. So everything that I use is just randomly generated. They're not terms. They're not something somebody's going to have in a list. Um, I think if, if, if you go about this from a theory perspective and from thinking about the different layers of attack, you're going to be far better off than anyone else. You don't want to yeah. just end up in a job where you're grinding and you're not learning anything. You want to have a good grasp on security to begin with. And I think that like the next generation of admins needs to just step back from, and I, I mean, no offense, but like step back from the security space and what's hot and flashy and think about everything on a layer. Um, and when you're talking about layers, I'm talking about like OSI models and, you know, what's attackable where and why and how can I remediate this? Yeah. Uh, as far as admin work goes, like it's really easy from a Windows perspective when you deal with W or not WSUS, sorry. When you deal with um, WDS and MDT and you can do like Microsoft deployment toolkits and you can, you know, even if, even if that's something you also have to maintain. So you talk about like current builds of 10, which is constantly changing as well. Uh, you need to be running like the, the latest ISO. You'd be running build 1803. You need to be able to freshly deploy it, yes, but then you can use MD, MDT to deploy all of your custom software and what you're building on top of it. So that's something that, you know, you do have to proactively maintain, but if you can network boot stuff and image it and do, you know, 10, 20 machines at once, why the hell wouldn't you? And you can also yeah. tie that into Hyper-V and set up your, you know, your fresh installs there. It's something that I haven't personally had a lot of time to dig into just because at scale, like what I'm dealing with right now is just trying to keep up in the grind. I'm sure people can relate here. So Yeah. Exactly. That's awesome. Um so yeah, where what is your actual website? Or you can post it in the Twitch chat if you have. Yeah, I will. It's nomtechbytes.com. It's spelled all fucking funky, but Someone asked if any of us use Hacker One. Yeah, um, I, I, for Mickey Donald, are you asking about if we use that for our companies or if we are researchers on there? I mean, I think the answer is going to be both. Yes to both. <laughs> I've been poking bug crowd as well to like dig into SMB space. I don't know if you guys were seeing any of that, but I think there's a huge gap and it's pretty complicated as far as access controls go, but I'd, I'd really love to see that in order to just help out uh, upcoming admins and engineers. I think it'd be something that's definitely beneficial in paying for. Yeah. Um, I just posted a one of the tweets for uh, the thug crowd. Zoff, you there. Um, I mean... Oh, yeah. You were there. This is uh, that's that's Casey Ellis is back from uh, from Bug Crowd with a Thug Crowd sticker on his back. I didn't um, see him, but I was dancing on stage. <laughs> yeah, from that picture. Yeah. Um. So I mean, I guess if the question is if we, yeah, like I've been paid out from HackerOne as a researcher, and uh, yeah, looked into like using multiple bug bounty vendors. I guess that's probably the same for a few other people here as well. It's just weird, man. It's like in reverse for me coming up in infrastructure and like seeing these people just, you know, attack stuff versus defend. And that's like, I think where I am a lot different than a lot of you is because I've, I've you know, you see the bullshit, you analyze it and you learn to defend against it. But a lot of these big companies, I think that 
they, you know, they won't hire a full security team. So these are services they definitely look at. And they look yeah. at this also for creativity, for, you know, from a hack per, hacker perspective or a researcher perspective, like how, how far are you willing to go and how, how much in depth can you dig? And those are definitely like up to you guys. But I think that's why you see these enormous companies looking at services such as like um, BugCrowd and HackerOne. Yeah, no, I definitely think it's it's good because that's what you were saying before. A lot of places aren't going to hire a full security team. It's it's expensive. Even if you're doing it offsite, you're contracting to like a, a an offsite security operations center. Those are just very expensive things that also might not fully cover the way that you could if you could have really well trained devs and sysadmins to do that for you because the other people are going to just be able to alert on something. That they that you know trigger something in their whatever their IDS they're using, but the people who are actually maintaining those systems are the ones who are going to understand and be able to triage those problems. And it's just like they have to know, and they have to be very well versed in as what you're saying, like even like the basics of like you know attack vectors via layers of like the OSI model of like okay, is this something that we actually need to care about or are we mitigating it through some other way you know right and security as a service is expensive i can tell you that like i there are certain compliance regulations though that re like require so like I, I work in government and finance there are certain contracts we sign that require a third party to do this and it's for a good reason because a lot of the tools that you'd even run like for volans you can sit there and like create custom scam policies and you can you can present the client whatever the hell you want but it's where the third-party vendors come in handy, and when you're doing, dealing with compliance, they're going to present everything. And I think that's a good regulation to have, um, because yeah, you could bullshit your way through a report all day. Yeah, absolutely. But it's like eight to it's eight to ten k here in the Denver area just to get somebody to scan a web application, which is insane to me. Really. Yeah, I'm not even kidding. Like I've called, I've talked to, I think about seven vendors in the area just because like I was saying, compliance requires a third party. And when you're signing these enormous contracts and you're doing like recurring revenue, that's what they want. So scary. that's what you have to do. Scary thought to know that a lot of these tools are automated already. So you just click a button, you're done. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, it's changing, ever-changing world of tech, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's probably something we should talk about. Like, when you get, like, so are you handed the report at the end of that uh, of that scan, or does that go to someone else? It, it goes to me so I can look at it and revise, and I can also cross-reference, because I'm, I, I'm also proactively scanning every web application that we've built on a monthly basis, too. So I'll sit there and say, you know, is this bullshit? Is it not? Like, what are they? What are they actually using as far as tools? Are they going into the depth of like trying to run? You know, are they running exploit kits? Are they, are they presenting me something that's worthwhile or not? And a lot of third parties are disposable. I'll tell you that. Like, what you look at and what's what's given to you might just be like a simple compliance template report, it might, or PCI compliance template report. It might be an OWASP template template report and that's just it's astounding to me because like i was saying like netsparker you can pay i think it's like 5k a year and you can do all these scans um and you can do everything that most of these people are just rebranding as their own which is crazy because like i said they're charging you probably 5 to 10k a scan uh rebranding as your own topic of the day <laughs> yeah. something else that's a, that's a different story we'll, yeah. we'll talk, might talk about that another time yeah i don't think we have time for that tonight <laughs>
but yeah, I I don't know if anybody has any other questions, I'm open to them and I'll answer them as fully as I can. Yes, maybe. Uh, maybe we've. Sorry, we've I realized I was muted. I'm so sorry. I literally was just talking and realized that I wasn't. I was muted. Oh, what's up? Hey, so I was just saying that Jack had mentioned um, about the free cloud space where people who do want to practice with this kind of stuff to just test it. Um, Google Cloud has um, free stuff as well as AWS has like a free year as well. Um, it's definitely good to just dive into if you are interested in this kind of stuff and seeing what's actually available. Because when you get to like the AWS dashboard, there's so many different services and like tools. You're like, what is all this stuff? There's there's even further dashboards and tools when you click on the things in the main page and then it just goes further and further and yeah yeah Pretty it'll cool. it'll flurry you really quick I I do have I have a horror story for you all right so right. S SES all right so yep. SES you can tie in a simple email service it's AWS it's just they handle SMTP for you they also blacklist you if you surpass a ten percent bounce rate so for software as a service we have like we had all these emails, okay? I pull a database back and I, I, I uh, anonymize all the information. So if it's social securities, if it's uh, emails so that clients don't get alerts when we're messing around in lower environments, uh, social security numbers. So what happened was in integration, we had ended up testing something and we pushed it all the way from integration with SES keys all the way up to production. And then I pulled it back from production into integration and I set all the emails to fake and then the bounce rate spiked at like 10%. So AWS doesn't mess around. If, if, you, if you hit this limit, they're, they're gonna blacklist your account ASAP. And what happens is in support level, that's all split out as well. So they have specific product teams that deal with this kind of stuff. So it's up to you to investigate where this is happening and why. And it doesn't give you a lot of information either, but I, I ended up finding out that we had pulled back these production SES keys and accounts. We'd put them in integration and then it hit all these at fake.com addresses <laughs> and it ended up killing our production account, which really <laughs> sucked. So uh, as from a software as a service perspective, you need to proactively think about, yes, you might test from integration on your way up, but then also be able to remediate and strip out what's lower once you actually do. And I think that a lot of vendors fail at that. There's a lot you know of what? times where stuff breaks for bullshit reasons. I, I really, I didn't know about the uh, ten percent bounce rate or whatever it is that kills us. Yes, I mean uh, that that's going to be that'll be a nicer, you know, thing to uh, to test on uh, on a few clients. You know, just yeah, <laughs> try and reset passwords repeatedly, like the yeah. burp repeater or whatever. And then you can also set up uh, CloudWatch, which is like their monitoring service. You can set CloudWatch limits very easily through a GUI. So you can say, like what I did after the fact is I was like, hey, if this ever goes above 5%, I want an alert sent to this address. So it's like, it's about being proactive in that sense. Like if, if you do ever have a problem, what did you do to ensure that that never happens again? Yeah. I think with the bounce backs as well, you can you can forward them off to an SNS topic and then have them. Uh, I mean, SNS is another AWS term that you can people can go and Google. But um, yeah, we, we can have uh, your, your like your dead letter queue go off to SNS and take action from there automatically. Yeah, because I mean, it's all about getting somebody to 
actively look or pay attention. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things. That's, I guess that's the goal that we've been talking about the whole, like this whole show is, uh, you know, automating the processes, um, basically like automating people out of jobs. Um, but then also having people sit there and take notice of the, the, the results of those, uh, machine people. Once you automate it, they typically fire you. That's the fun thing about security is, you know, you've always got a job because <laughs> give it give it a year. Give it six months. Yeah, there's no there's no tool like I was saying though, like there's no tool that if you're dealing with like Cali or you're running Parrot and you're like proactively looking at this stuff, I think that that's a hell of a skill that will never be replaced, at least in the near future, for the next five years is if you can do that and you can go after OSCP and you can be an effective pen tester, nobody's gonna be able to replace you. You might have all the side skills and or you know side skills and automation, but it's that's one I don't see being replaced anytime soon. I think that's why like third party services exist for bug hunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely very high in demand stuff. I think security is probably going to be a recession proof, you know, skill yeah. set. Yeah, I, I um. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people say there's a job shortage. Uh, sorry, a uh, skills shortage in um in cybersecurity, but uh, you know, I don't really think there is. I think it might be the other way around that people aren't asking the right questions. Like Zoff was saying before, like sysadmins learning everything they need to know, and then you know they can understand security. So, and it's not something you do in school too. And I, I think that's kind of like where I came up as being like a rebellious person against authority. I knew that if I were to go to school for this stuff, like there was no degree and there was nothing put on paper and there was no cert that was going to cover the, the like vast amount of knowledge from like a stack perspective that I actually wanted to know. And it was like, if I do get out of college, like what stack did I learn on what's changed in between? And then you also have to catch up Uh, for a lot of people. Like if you're listening to this and you're, if you're 18 and you're wondering what the fuck you should do with your life, do your own thing. Like get in and learn it. The hardest part is going to be finding a good mentor or someone to teach you and actually show you these things um, on a screen and explain them in full to you. And that's where I had the hardest time. Like my the first five years of my career were fucking terrible. I had people that didn't want to listen to me, that wouldn't give me a chance, that wouldn't give me a senior role just because I didn't have a piece of paper, and it was bullshit. Um, and I think that I'm like self-sustaining proof that if you have the drive and you 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 have the capacity to learn this and proactively research what you're doing. And you happen to be in a a tech Mecca like Colorado or California or Portland. True. I mean, I don't know. I, I I grew up in in the middle of nowhere and um, I moved basically to get into tech as soon as I could. Uh, And again, like my, what's my bio on Twitter old enough to remember when the only computer misuse certificates came from the streets. Um, yeah, because they're totally right. Like nobody's teaching this stuff. Um, and I was just saying before the show how yesterday, um, if anybody saw the tweets, I busted into a criminology class at a university right at the end, and I thought they were going to. The lecturer was expecting me, and they weren't. And I just like walked in. They were like, uh, "I was just like, hey, I heard you talking about hacking." And they were like, uh, "What? Did you want to say something?" And I'm like, "I don't know. Did you want me to say something?" And they're like, "Ah, oh, we're finishing up." Uh, and then, yeah, the. The things they were teaching in, in this class about hacking were 
like you said, like so out of date and they were using the term like hacker and cracker and stuff and teaching like this class and I was like, what? Uh, you <laughs> what need to know the difference this? between viruses and Trojans. Like, oh my God. Okay, sure. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. So it was, it was, I was, it was, I was pretty hilarious. I was reading uh, white papers, to be honest. Like if you can get into one of those institutions like IEEE, they have um, a bunch of security research papers and you, you read through those and you can kind of sift through it. Like, oh, okay, that, those are some of the, the things that, that people that do crime do. <laughs> you bring up a really good point, too, is it's like, how many security products are you running on these instances or, you know, cloud servers? Like, what do they actually remediate for? So talk about, like, malware, you talk about antivirus, you talk about ransomware. There are multiple levels of the stack that you should be fucking protecting against. And it's, like, the hardest thing when you, like... You know, when you read something and you're like, okay, they just had AV. Like, what about this malware that got through? Or what about this ransomware that affected them? Like, why did it affect them? Were they running old protocols? Um, like, I have I have a solution for AV DAT files. I have a solution for, you know, malware. I have a solution for ransomware. And they're all separate for a damn good reason. There's no, there's no all-in-one solution. And I think uh, that's a lot of thing. That's something that a lot of people just don't think about. Yeah, I guess a good example of uh, when it was uh, the, like Code Red or Slammer or something from from around that time, like network traffic just, just being hammered out of boxes. It could have been cut off. Yeah, they let that one box get smashed, but you know. And speaking of the uh, sorry, speaking of security. Say, <laughs> here you go. Uh, do you run any honeypots in your environment? Is that a corporate it's, secret? You talk no, about it's, it? Or? It's it's fun. <laughs> it's fun to run dead ends for people to hit. I mean, <laughs> you, you proactively see what they're what they're doing, and you know, from then you, you just build a baseline or you, you you build in rules to stop the shit in the first place. But it's it's great to look on Shodan and see what's publicly available and see what people can hit and can't and what they do with it. So yeah, I do. It's uh, it, it's fun for me. Like I think that I'm like one of those weird engineers and getting to like the architect level now to where I truly appreciate like what people what people do, what uh, the methods they use, and being able to defend against it is a fun part for me. Like I'll fight you guys all fucking day. Like you know, bring it on. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, so it's getting yeah, the end of the show now. Um, I should probably jump off, but I'd like to thank you very much for coming on here. Is there any way that um, we can have people contact you if they have any more questions? Yeah, I'm stuff stuff on Twitter. You guys can see me here if you're listening to the stream, so it's pretty easy to find me. Oh yeah. Also, what is your GitHub? Is that on your website? Uh, it's G- GitHub is stuff stuff as well. Everything's pretty generalized, so you guys should be able to come across that stuff. A lot of scripts that I write have been generalized, whether they be like an automation in process, uh, like user onboarding, for instance, or doing this kind of stuff, like I was saying, custom queries against databases and sending them back over SMTP connections. And um, yeah, just definitely research the shit out of anything you guys set up from a defensive perspective and decide if that's like the best protocol or route to go. And from then, you know, who, who can access what and why? damn good question yeah. <laughs> awesome well thank you very much for coming and hanging out um we yeah it's been awesome um 
please leave any questions um let us know let's up know we'll be putting some of the notes in our show notes um along with his website github and everything else tune in next week we'll be talking to a uh, wave guy d uh the host of a uh, hacker warehouse um courtesy of not like and we've got um actually in our show notes if you saw we have a bunch of cool um upcoming shows so we'll see you guys next tuesday yeah thank you much i appreciate you guys oh yeah best crowd <laughs> night y'all <laughs> thanks man